0: Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD.
1: Hi, everybody. This is David, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. So, Today's show is back to school safety special. Time to be totally terrified. Safety Doc episode number thirty-nine. So we're going to talk about back to school. When I talk about totally terrified, you know, there's a, a lot of hype that goes in the drills with back to school. So let's let's talk about that. What happens and what truly needs to happen to prepare uh, students, staff, administration, community, parents for What, uh, back to school safety really is all about. So a few anecdotes to start out. Uh, one is I love running, you know, so I'm, I was down on the high school track a few nights ago and, you know, about 12 feet in, something's moving and I'm thinking, ah, it's maybe a groundhog, something like that. So I take my flashlight, shine it over. It is a skunk. It's a skunk. So I'm like, oh, wow, this is this skunk's kind of ignoring me. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to slow down and just, like, you know, exit. And uh, so two days later, I go back down, and then there's a paved path that goes to the track. And a skunk is on this path. So I'm like, dude, what's the deal here? Um, you know, of course, you know, it's far enough away, and it kind of ignores me. And, of course, I turn around, but I'm thinking, well, I've got to make a decision here because I can't just keep going down to the the track because if I run and a skunk is like on the track, it could get frightened and, you know, I could end up standing outside getting hosed off, you know, with hydrogen peroxide and, um, tomato, uh, juice, you know, to get the, uh, skunk smell off of me. So I'm like, I don't know. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. We have, uh, Japanese beetles have kind of infested our area and, they are a delicacy, apparently, for skunks, so I think that's why the skunks are out. I've lived here fifteen years, had never seen skunks until this week. So yeah, I think I'm gonna have to just kind of stick with you know running or biking during the day for now, let it get a little cooler, and then um you know, Japanese beetles I think will be gone give it uh give it a chance and go back. Uh, hopefully won't encounter any skunks in a negative way. Thankfully skunks are pretty docile. And, um, yeah, I think if you leave them alone, you're okay. But yeah, just weird. So I went to the county fair with my family and you know, it, it's close by, which is nice. You know, when you live in the county seat, the county fair right there. So, um, a few observations though. So less displays, lower attendance. And you know, it was a wonderful day. It was like 78 and sunny fewer rides for you know the kids they had wristband day there wasn't a ferris wheel um and and then of course the displays you know most of his photography but you know people have made quilts or their own clothes which always amazes me um and other things but there just wasn't a lot of that this year and i don't know if it's if if a trend of the fair kind of dying out because you think of one fair started, you know, the things that people used to display a lot of homemade, you know, things and I wonder if there is more of a modern version of the fair because I just don't see it appealing as much to the younger generation. So, um and the other part we went through um the the you know barn basically where they keep the the rabbits and roosters and chickens and things like that. And they have small pens, you know, so you walk by and you look and you get, this one got a blue ribbon, this one got a red ribbon, you know, this one got a gold ribbon, whatever. Um, and I kind of feel bad about that a little bit because it's like, well, you know, it's such a small pen and, um, you know, it can't be that comfortable for whatever animal is in there. And at the same time, I think it's kind of good for my daughters to see some different animals because we live in the city. Of course, we don't have anything except cats. Uh, so, yeah, we have some different, you know, animals that we're, we're exposed to through the fair. I think it'd be really cool if what they did is they would let you, like, hold a bunny or, you know, they would let you pet a rooster. I don't know. Can you pet a rooster? But things like that, a little more interactive. But I don't know. It just had this feeling of being a little bit outdated. Um, and, and I've gone to it, you know, pretty much every year we've gone to it. And this was the first year I kind of felt that. Although there was this pretzel stand. It hadn't been there before. It's local. They make this, this big soft pretzel in front of you. And I had this, this large uh, Parmesan pretzel, which was the best soft pretzel I've had in my life. So from that regard, yes, fair, awesome. Um, so yeah, wow. Anyway, I'm, I'm out biking the other day and, and these are great bike rides. It's kind of getting a little bit toward the end of the season for me for bike rides. And, uh, so what I like is, you know, the, the crops are grown. So you get to see the corn and the, and the tassels and you can start to see, and you get that sweetness that comes off the field with the breeze. And, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, biking down, it's a country road, it's paved and, this uh, pheasant walks out to the middle middle of the road, you know, about 30 feet ahead of me, and I'm biking, like, really slow, and I kind of, like, just stop, and this pheasant looks at me, kind of eyed me up, and then he kind of, like, walks a little bit back toward the the ditch, gives kind of a little signal, also, like, 20 pheasants, fly, just take off, and then, you know, I just keep biking on, I'm thinking, dude, dude, pheasant, like, you were sent out here to do reconnaissance, like to check me out. I'm on a bike. All I want to do is just bike past. You could have just gone back and told your buddies, "Hey, this guy's all right. He's just biking through. There's no need for us to like expel all our energy and fly way over here to these trees and whatever." I just, I just thought it was a goofiest thing. Came back. It wasn't pheasants. It was turkeys crossing the road. So I had to wait for this. Like I'm, the, I'm sure there's a term for turkeys crossing the road. And this, this, these turkeys cross the road. And then the last one doesn't, though the last one is, is questioning. Should he like keep going, follow all of his turkey friends? But he takes off and goes back the other way. So I'm like, again, poor choice turkey. I'm just waiting to get across, you know, once you guys are done here. So, um, but funny, you know, funny some of the behavior of, of, of these, these animals, the reconnaissance pheasant and I think the scared. Turkey. So we are going to uh, talk today about high drama multi-agency drills. Multi-agency, not inter-agency. I say multi-agency because police, fire, and EMS typically don't practice together. Like when fire departments practice, they like their Thursday night practice twice a month, or you know whatever, and, and they're not practicing with fire and with EMS. And when EMS, you know, does their drills and practice, they're not practicing. Typically, when you have these school, like the active shooter type multi. Um, agency events. Yeah, then they're all together. But but I'm saying interagency is where I think you have this ongoing collaboration, which really doesn't exist. And, And not that that's necessarily a bad thing, um, because I, I think a lot of that can develop these systems kind of in the moment. We saw that at nine eleven and it's boat rescue of five hundred thousand people in nine hours from New York Harbor. You know, these systems of highly highly trained professionals can merge and create this this greater system. But again, these are multi-agency drills, not interagency drills, just to be clear be clear on that. And and uh, these can cause trauma, okay? When you do up in and like the image for today's for today's episode, if you're watching on YouTube, and, and also, you know, this is the image I'm using, um, for, for the audio version. But, you know, it's a girl who is, who is done up with makeup. So she has apparently gunshot, uh, wound to the head and then also to the chest. And I actually got to play the role of someone who was shot and lying down in a hallway. And, and these things I think are just ridiculous. Um, I think they're, I think they're ridiculous. Yet we have a movement out there where school after school is doing this, okay? They're, they're doing these. They're being convinced by these paramilitary organizations that you have to be going through this training and, and all of this. You can defend yourself against school intruders. Okay. Again, the reality is from empirical science, we know that the probability of a shooting in a school is once every 13,000 years per, per Cornell University, uh, which comes out to per day. OK, if we take 180 school days, it's point zero 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 four percent per day that there would be a school shooting at any specific school. And that is significantly less, for example, than the likelihood that there could be a lightning strike out at recess or during a ball game or something like that, you know, like a football game. So but yet, you know, we know the uh, school shooting is a, it's a sentinel event. Uh, it's very dramatic. Um so of course it rises up in priority, even though in probability it's very, very low. Very low. And and so we practice for the drills. What do we do? We we, we get kids and we get adults to participate in everything like that. And, and they, they do them up like, you know, they've been shot with blood and they're lying in hallways and, and it's supposed to then create the sense of realness for the first responders. And it's just crazy, folks, because we don't train this way when we do fire drills. We don't set baskets on fire, you know, metal baskets with paper on fire and, and and have smoke in hallways and have kids, you know, try to get out and have fire department getting in, trying to find the source of the fire. We don't um, have barn fans at the end of a hallway and we shuffle in handfuls of gravel and have, you know, people pelt it as, they're, as if it's like a, a wind tunnel as a tornado is, is striking a school. We don't do things like this. We just don't do drills like this. In other settings, um, and I, I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. It's done for for people to see. It's done as an illusion of safety. It does not create a safer environment, and um, we're going to talk about that more once we get into the show. So, I'm going to talk right now about best reminders for start of school year for staff, administrators, and students and then also some of my findings about kind of drill de- um, desensitization, being desensitized to drills uh, from my dissertation research, my doctoral dissertation, Then we'll end up with better practices. But for right now, let's take a break so you can learn a little more about the safety doc here on the405media.com.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations when we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Safety Doc Podcast. So, best reminders for start of the school year are, for staff, exercise situational awareness and trust your gut feeling, that tacit knowledge. Quickly report concerns to administrators. If something doesn't seem right, hey, this person's been walking outside of the school back and forth for an hour, and by the way, it's uh, 75 degrees out and they have like a ski mask on, report that. That sounds crazy, right? It actually happened in a school um, you know, that I had worked with, and nobody reported it for well over an hour. Just kind of thought, ah, it's out there, but it's well within the norm, and, you know, he's way out on the sidewalk, so anyway. Um, go through the harassment, again, for staff, go through the harassment and threat input system step-by-step with all students. Like, here's what it is, step-by-step, and give extra training to youth with special needs. What typically happens here is, This is covered in the handbook. Hey, it was page 37 in the handbook, and parents were asked to go over it with their child, sign that they went over it with their child, and then send it back with their child. Um, What typically happens, like maybe 20% come back. There's no follow-up on that. And then, um, you know, that's it. It's all passive. Or, you know, like watch this video online, or we'll have something in the newsletter. No, be explicit. Like go through what the threat input system is, what is harassment, um, you know, how to report it, and then especially youth with special needs or English language learners, but let's say youth with special needs, like a student with autism, have it as an IP goal that they'll understand what harassment is and how to report that. That's a lifelong skill that you're teaching right there. Administrators, tell staff you have their back if they exercise discretion to act in the best interest of students, others, or self. So I had an example where I was was in this meeting of teachers and community representatives, administrators, police, and and, and so forth, and we're trying to come up with um, the flip chart, which which I'm not a big fan of anyway. But the flip chart of okay, if there is an active shooter situation, this is what you do, and we got to the point where teachers in the room really struggled. With this, this whole thought of discretion. So like the discretion to, you know, if, if you can open your window and get your kids out through the playground that way, can, should you do that? So it's evaluating context and situation and making that judgment. Um, discretion to even fight an intruder if an intruder is in your room and you have no other option, like you're cornered. And, and teachers basically wanted to be completely validated because they did not want to do anything that then would bring them into question. Okay being like, did you make the right decision in this, and were you acting outside of protocol? And if so, if you're acting outside of school protocol, you can be open opening yourself possibly to some litigation, things like this. So, oh, that was a painstaking process. It just took forever. But I think you come in and you say, listen, you act in the best interest of that child and yourself in the moment, in the context, in the situation, and and that's what you do. And that, and that's backed up by the law, folks. I mean, that is backed up by the law. I believe it's like 60 court cases looked at best interest of the student found in every situation. It was different, you know, because you cannot replicate context and, 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 situation. So, um, tell staff that, you know, when there's an intruder event or maybe a bomb threat or something like that, I think this is at a staff meeting at the start of the year, if you're an administrator, you sit down and you say, here's the deal like if there is a school shooting someone brings a school a gun in shoot you know shoots um this is a crime scene school is probably going to not be accessible to you for 24 to 48 hours the parking lot isn't and and do that let people know ahead of time you can just you know just say that um i went to a school that um there was a school shooting there and one of the things when i worked with administration afterwards um they said, you know what? The, the event was horrible, of course, but something that also struck us that we had a hard time dealing with was afterwards, um, you know, we thought we could go back into the school, retrieve our items, get our cars. I mean, it was later in the day toward night and go home. And the police said, no, it's a crime scene. You can't get in. You can't get into your vehicles and you can't go into the parking lot. This is, this is a crime scene. So people then, um, became very anxious. And other districts and, and, you know, other people did a great job in offering rides, but some people actually, this was a rural district, you know, like lived them hour away. So they get a ride and then they have to get the ride the next day. And I mean, if you have personal belongings, like your cell phone um, is still at your desk or something like that, I mean, you can't access it. It's gone, you know, for, um, you know, for that amount of time. So it, it's just really something if you tell people ahead of time, I think it helps a lot. And, um, actually they, they do that right now. Like in survivors of, of 9 go, there's a survivor's group and they go and talk to people who work in skyscrapers and say, you know, if, if your skyscraper gets hit by an airplane, this is what to expect. Um, as far as like your crisis response and, and they do this, they don't talk about like their story. They talk about, here's what to expect. And, and this is something, again, you don't have to d- dwell on it as an administrator, but I think to make people aware. And that's one thing this group of administrators talked about when I met with them, um, is they said, you know, if we would, just would have been aware, if someone would have said that, like we would have expected it, and it wouldn't have really hit us that hard as the, the, this, this kind of second phase after the initial event, the uh, uh, secondary event of trying to get back into our Taurus or back into some type of self-similarity closer to it, of being able to get in our classroom, retrieve our personal belongings, get in our vehicle, go home—you know—you're still going to be way in the chaos mode of, of trying to figure yourself. But but all of that's gone. Like your Taurus, so so you're you're still out in this chaos mode and anxiety. Just think about you. Like if you came out of work and your parking lot is taped off in yellow tape, and there's the police officers that are saying something happened out here. Um, you're not going to be able to go home tonight. Like this will probably be for 24 hours a crime scene. You'd be like, what? You know, it, it, just imagine how you'd feel, okay? So um, the other thing, tell parents, if you're an administrator, tell parents that in the event of an intruder or a lockdown situation, to not drive to the school. They're going to get texts from their kids, okay, saying something's not right at school, please come here right away. And a number of parents are going to drive. They're going to be very passionate, and and they're going to come to the school. I need my kid. I need my kid. The thing is, you know, when they come to the schools, and this still happened at Sandy Hook, it was a big problem um, at Columbine, but what happens is parents come in and they block off the arteries or the way in and the way out for emergency responders. Now you also have additional people to deal with um, who are very emotional, very rational, um, it, and I can it's a natural response to tell people this is going to be a natural response. This is how you're going to feel. Like your kid is here, you're going to want to get here but we're not going to be able to get you into the scene um, to retrieve your child. We're going to have a site, um, a reunification site, which we will make you aware of. You know, we'll, we'll do that through the media. We'll do that through our webpage, through all the different types of so, social media that we have. So we will do that. And the other thing is to not identify where your re- reunification sites are because a number of districts will, will do this. And one, they, they check. I remember one that checked. They're like, we think the reunification site is this church two blocks away. And then they, they looked and they didn't even have keys to the place. But, um, you know, you don't know what your reunification site is going to be. Let's say it's a natural gas leak at the school and the fire department says we have to have a four block radius, um, that we consider safe and you're, You know, you're two, three blocks in for your, your reunification site. That's not going to work. So I think the biggest thing is to tell people we are going to have a reunification site that would be identified as appropriate by police and responders. Um, and then we will identify, we'll let you know where that identification site, uh, reunification site is. And then, um, you know, set up a orderly way to conduct that reunification. So I think that's much better than people than trying to rush to a site where they're anticipating, um, students are going to be, and they might not necessarily be there. Again, you cannot anticipate where these perimeters are going to be. I think it's very, um, very bad to, to set that up ahead of time versus telling people, hey, this is how it's going to work. A reunification site will let you know, your child will be safe when they're there, and, and then, you know, we'll make that, that reunification site. Or it might actually, you know, be at the school, but it's going to be at a certain time. You know, we'll let you know when it's when it's safe. We want to make sure this is a thing people assume too, like in active shooter situations, for example, like it's one active shooter. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Maybe there were more than one active shooter, you know, shooters involved. Or maybe it was an active shooter. But then there's also like a mysterious backpack, the active shooter left behind or things like that. There's numerous things that police need to go through to make sure that a scene is is secure. And then also, you know how that reunification works, as far as you know, not interfering with with the evidence at the scene. So I think to let people know this, and I'm going to talk about how how to do that too. Um, again, and also as administrators prepare to investigate and document all claims of harassment and threats, have that as a standard process of how you do that, and then also how you document that. I know an administrator that investigated over 100 claims by one student in one year, okay? You need to be ready to do that. And every time you go about documenting the claim, um, identifying who is involved, gathering your data, investigating, interviewing, documenting, entering into your system. Um, school districts, you know, uh, administrators take shortcuts on this. I've seen this. I've seen this firsthand through you know my, my work with schools. Um, some administrators will, will document everything and others will, will not document much or any at all. Um, so it becomes really a struggle then, especially if you have recurrent events to put together a pattern where you can um, more appropriately uh, direct assistance and help toward that student. If that, if you have documentation of types of those things existing, but um, for, Students, students, yeah, hey, you're part in this. Um, you know, students, be explicit in covering the school handbook for areas of safety, including threat to others and, and harm to self. You need to go through the handbook. And basically, though, here's the deal. Like, your your teachers need to go over the handbook with you, and you need to ask questions of saying, I don't understand what what's the difference between, like, friendly teasing and harassment. Like, you just indicated, like my – if if this person they, their favorite sports team like they wear the jersey and the team lost the, the day before and was you know out of the the playoffs and I say something like oh you shouldn't have wore that shirt is that is that harassment or is that like friendly teasing or something like that so you know to me that's like friendly teasing but what what's you know what's the difference in describing that and then also um, students asking questions like. How do I access this online system? Or can I like have, I'm, I'm afraid to report this because something might happen to me. Can I go to a teacher and the teacher helps me fill out the form? Can I take something? Can my parents access this at home? I mean, all these types of questions or what if nobody does anything? Or what if I report this and I, someone tries to, to beat me up then or something like that? I mean, these are the things where I think you want, you want to ask students. You want to go through this and ask students and for students, be explicit. Like say, hey, I don't understand this, here. this doesn't make sense to me, okay? Um, and then also demonstrate that reporting process to students, have them demonstrate it back to you, like actually maybe log into the system um, up on a, a smart board or up on a screen you know, so all the students can see it. Like this is how you do it, okay? Um, explain the purpose of drills and be aware of benchmarking mistakes. So th- this is what you need to do for students, okay? You need to say, Hey, this is the purpose of this active intruder shooter drill or fire drill. I mean, it's just more understandable. But this is why we're doing this this drill. Do you understand it? And then have them say, "This is okay. Yeah, this is why we're doing this drill. This is, you know, why we're doing this tornado drill." And what I say is, beware of benchmarking mistakes. And I get into this um, in just a second here. But benchmarking mistakes basically mean that you know, hey, we we. We're able to evacuate the building in three minutes and 12 seconds. That's awesome. Well, if you compare like 10 elementaries and this one is three minutes and 12 seconds, this one is two minutes, and 30 seconds, this is whatever, whatever. You might just rank those and say like, this was the best. This was, this was the worst. The reality is though, like, Hey, this school is built in 1908. It's got like three flights of stairs and it's, it's like, you know, laid out really crazy and there's like different hallways you go down. This school was built four years ago. It's very easy to access. It's all on one level. It's easier to get out. There's more exits and things like that. So the thing is, like in benchmarking, don't benchmark against other schools. Benchmark against your own school and then trying to improve. But it's not like there's a secret number. It's not like you look at your school and say, oh, yeah, we should be able to get everybody out of this school in two minutes and 28 seconds. Well, I mean, what's your population also? Students with mobility disabilities, disabilities, Um, and students with autism. Um, I mean, all of these, all of these factors do come into play. So it's one of those things where you benchmark against kind of a ghost. So don't get too lost into, into that and don't benchmark yourself against other schools because again, your billings are different. Um, your staff is different. Um, the students that you serve are different. I, I I just, I don't find any value in that at all. So I wrote this in my dissertation in in 2016 and I'm going to I'm going to just read through it. Um, many schools throughout the United States are mandated to hold drills or ex or operational exercises to prepare for fires, tornadoes, violence and other emergencies. Despite recommendations by the Federal Emergency Management Agency and the US Department of Ed no local or federal agency routinely monitors the frequency and quality of drills. Think about that. No one's coming in. No one is coming in and monitoring your drills. And of course there's this thing you have to report at the end of the year. Yeah, we did fire drills on these dates and whatever, but no one's coming in and monitoring. They're not observing. They're not telling you if it's good or bad or how you could improve. Hence drills are often checklist activities and not exercises to, better informed practice. Furthermore, research that has been done to assess the impact of drills suggests that they produce both benefits such as students learning the evacuation location and drawbacks, including student apathy and becoming desensitized to drills. The other part with drills, and I, I don't agree with this, but people will say, well if we do the drills, then we're just teaching the students who could be um, you know, school shooters how we work and they're gonna know that inside perspective of, of how these drills work and it's like yeah, I guess it could happen, but um, so again, but the biggest drawback of student, you know, apathy and then also becoming desensitized to drills. So to test the efficacy of drills, Zion Nickerson, 2007, conducted a study using a sample of 74 elementary students divided into two groups. The first group received a training session and participation in an intruder drill. The second group was a placebo and did not participate in the training or drill. In a post-drill measurement, using questions and observations, the researchers looked at the areas of student knowledge of drill skills, state of anxiety, and perceptions of school safety. The intervention group acquired the skill of safe relocation during the drill. Okay, the intervention group acquired the skill of safe relocation during the drill. However, there were no difference in state of anxiety or perception of school safety between the groups. So meaning, like, if you drill a lot, it's it's not like the anxiety was going down in groups or the perception, like, that we're safer because you do the drills, okay? So this is one of those things, too, of, of, you know, when you drill – You really need to let students know why you're drilling and let students have an input then to why do you think we we did this? How could we do this better? You know, in in whatever. Um, In their study, Accountability and Assessment of Emergency Drills at Schools, Ramirez, uh, Kubasek, Peak, Asa, and Wong, 2009, reported their findings about attitudes toward and perceptions of drills from a study school district the authors revealed discouraging attitudes toward drilling drills were not typically recognized as a training vehicle but rather as a compulsory exercise with little meaning observations indicated that students particularly in the middle and high schools often did not evacuate in an orderly fashion for example in lines and staff generally did not correct this behavior it's like hey Alright, here's the fire alarm, sixth hour. Alright, everybody go outside. You're supposed to go to the sidewalk, but I guess if you go to the parking lot, that's okay. Somebody has a radio. Okay, was it all clear? All clear? Bill, it's all clear? Bill, we got it? Okay, it, yeah, it's an all clear. Okay, we can go back in. So that's kind of what it's like, you know? Um, while observers recorded the amount of time it took for staff and students to evacuate a building, these figures could not only it could only be compared to local averages and not against any known recommended threshold. They also noted that students appeared desensitized to the drills. It is possible that the apathy for safety drills perceived by Ramirez was part of a larger question of students' indifference to their school. Finally, drills were not used as opportunities to adopt changes in problematic procedures. I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But basically, saying students get desensitized to drills, I, I think part because we don't explain it, we don't help them to understand why we're doing drills and then get input afterwards and see changes. And this whole thing of these these figures could only be compared to local averages and not against any known recommended threshold. I don't think that's bad because, again, every building is unique. Every population served in the building is unique. But whatever you come up with in the building, the goal would be that the more you would practice it, the, the better you'd get. I mean, that you'd shave seconds off of that. I mean, just as you would with any practice. I go out and I practice, you know, shooting layups in basketball. If I do that every day, um, you know, eventually over time, I I should get better at that just by sheer repetition. But, again, you know, it's one of these things that that it's not like we have to set our goal, that everybody's out at two minutes. Well, okay, you know, that would be great, um, but, but does that make sense considering, you know, you have multiple students with physical disabilities and autism. And so what I guess your goal would be, here's your baseline. We want to decrease from baseline through repetition and helping kids get out of the, the billing and staff. So, um, and my big thing is encourage questions of the kids, you know, get the kids to ask questions, right? Right. That's the thing. Like, how often do we ask Did you really understand the drill? Why, what, why do we do this drill? What didn't you understand about the drill? What could make the drill better and more meaningful for you? We have to do the drills. Here's why, you know, like a state mandate or something Be be upfront. It's like a state mandate. So, you know, Hey, you know what time it is? It is trivia time here on the safety doc podcast. It's trivia time. So let us enter trivia time. You know what? Um, when I've been biking, I've been singing. Now, again, you know this is—it's pretty desolate. So, like, I'll sing "The Love Boat." I don't know why. It, it, it's pretty easy to sing. Um, the love boat. Soon we'll be making another run. How do you know if that's right? The love boat. It's just easy to sing. It sounds great when you're out. So, on a bike and not a boat. All right. Some trivia. Ah, it takes about 0.3 seconds to blink. Those of you that just watched this on YouTube, again, available on YouTube, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher. Subscribe, please, to the show. Please, okay? There's a weekly show. Um, There's also a blog. I'm doing a brand new website, too, that's going to have the blog incorporated into the site. It's going to be phenomenal. Phenomenal. Okay. Um, but anyway. Grey whales make the longest annual migration of any mammal 12,000 miles round trip. Which completely blows away my round trip total for going to Disney Orlando in March. The first actor to refuse an Oscar, Marlon Brando for the Godfather in 1973. Why? I don't don't know. I don't know. And all right. Okay. Hold on, everybody. The Milky Way galaxy is moving at 170 miles per second. Which is fast. uh, 170 miles per second. And you know at some point the Milky Way and Andromeda will collide So, again, if you're watching this, like, I have these great visuals of my hands colliding. Um, But, yeah, yeah. So that will be a downer day for a lot of of people when that happens. Although, like, it's, I've I've watched, like, videos of that. It would be very slow motion when that happens. But, uh, yeah, billions of years out there. So consider that when you're doing any uh, home improvement projects that at some point the collision of the Andromeda and Milky Way probably are going to destroy all of your hard work that's done now. So, by the way, my bathroom is complete. My main bathroom, secondary bathroom, is being renovated now. I was informed by the builder that we have over 1,000 pounds of porcelain tile between the floor and the walls of um, the main bathroom. And we did three walls in tile, and and the other is just uh, painted drywall. So, but we have over one thousand pounds of porcelain tile. Um, Okay, as cited in Web 2012, there are more than five hundred choices to be considered in every conflict situation. Okay, wow, five hundred choices to be considered in every conflict situation seems overwhelming. So, let's talk about better practices. Okay, let's let's talk. And, and spend some time and and kind of wrap things up here. So, um, here's what I, here's what I would recommend for schools wanting to prepare for a very safe start of the school year. I would do a community assembly a week before the school starts. I do this with administration, maybe get your, uh police liaison officer, police, whatever. I mean, administrators, teachers, whoever you want to put together on this. This is not too, it's not too big. It's not like everyone kind of is coming up and doing a forum presentation. But basically um I would record it. So I would, I would hold it at the school. I try to get people to come to it Um and I'd record it and I'd play it like on cable access or make it available on the school website. And then how about like a, a 30 second advertisement in the local movie theater. I took my daughters to see a movie recently And one of the things I noticed is, like, before the movie starts, they have these, like, 30-second commercials from local businesses. It's like, show small engine, you know, for all your small engine needs, which is where I bought my Weed Whacker, Mower, and Snowblower. They're wonderful, by the way. Um, But anyway, you know, they they have these commercials or the hair salon or whatever. Um, And I'm thinking you could easily, you know, work that in, of create something and get that in saying, you know, hey, by the way, it's back to school time. So, you know, we have a focus on safety. And if anything happens, know that the school is going to be communicating out to you. Please don't come to the school. We'll keep you informed. And the best thing, you know, is to understand our school reporting policy. Um, we have information up on our website. Also information at community forums that are going to, you know, at the start of school or, you know, whatever. Whatever you want to do with that. But I, I'm, I'm like, why doesn't anybody do that? Like, I'm sitting there before a movie, and and it's pretty packed. There's a lot of people in it. Not every community has a movie theater. I know that, but come on. That's, like, perfect. It's perfect. So while I'm eating my nachos with jalapenos, um, overview school safety practices, okay? Um, But this isn't a form for input into practices. So when you get together in the, the school auditorium or performing arts or whatever, and let's say 100 or 200 people show up, let's just say that. So it's, this is not an input session. It's not where people raise hands and say, I think you should do this or I think you should do this or whatever. I think you can have that. You can say like, we're going to stay around afterwards and we're going to answer questions and have people come up and answer, you know, ask questions so they can, they can feel like, you know, they've had their voice heard. But I think you come in you very, in a very detailed graphic manner. When I say graphic, like, you know, through visuals and things like that, say like, you know, school safety is important to us. Here's what we do. I don't, you know, you don't have to give away all of the trade secrets of your school. Here's what we do. Here's your role as a parent. It's very important. If you notice anything, a gut feeling or whatever, please contact us. You know, if it turns out to be nothing, no problem, but you know what? Maybe it's something. And, um, again, this is, this is what we're doing. Here's, you know, we do have cameras. Cameras really, though, are forensic tools for, you know, after the event, you know, if there's a fight or something like that. Um, and talk about that. Talk about, too, that, you know, hey, if anything happens here, like let's say we do have an intruder event, um, there's going to be hundreds of responders, and all call goes out, and people on-duty, off-duty. There could be people an hour or two away who decide to respond. And this happens all the time to, the, to these type of events there's going to be a social media flurry. So like you're going to see people like just swarming here from all over. It's going to be very difficult for us to, to manage. We are going to make sure that we have our instant command. We're going to work with our, our local police. Um, and you will see us on, on very quickly, you know, on the news, identifying the information that we have and saying, you know, we don't know this at this time. We're going to be up front with you. Um, and also like, here's how reunification is going to work. We're, we're going to, identify the best site um, that's not going to interfere with the responders Then also you know we can't predict exactly what what's going to be a secured area and what's not but we will we will work with the responders we'll get your children to the secured area we'll make you aware of that we'll have a process then to reunify you with your child. So do not worry about that. When your child's with us they will be in safekeeping. So but do not say, like, here's the reunification site for school X, school Y, school Z, because you cannot guarantee that, okay? And nothing is crazier than all of a sudden a parent showing up and it's like, oh, no, we had, we can't use this anymore because this site is, is within the perimeters. So now it's been moved to whatever. It's like, what? So, But the biggest thing is tell people, don't come to school. Do not block these arteries which we need for the responders to come in and out. We will tell you where to go. We'll give you a staging area, and that's where your children will be brought to you. And maybe it is going to be something where it has resolved at the school, and it, you will be able to come to the school. We're going to let you know of that. Um, but do not just come rushing to the school. That's going to cause interference. And we know you're going to get text. You know, you're going to get voicemails. You're going to get calls from your child saying, something's not right here at school. Please come and get me. But you need to know for... Us to best respond to this situation, we cannot have um, hundreds of cars pulling up and just parking, you know, all over the place and, and, and just blocking off the arteries for our our emergency responders, which happens happened again at Sandy Hook in 2012. So um, also the fact of you know, do not believe social media of what's going on. There's going to be a lot of stuff circulating. We will do press conferences. We'll be very timely in those and in getting information out to you. Again, you know, we want to get your child reunified to you as soon as possible, but there also might be instances where, you know, we need to get information from your child. Um, but again, there's going to be a lot of, uh, emergency responders. We're going to have a lot of people who are going to be supporting the situation and supporting also our reuni- reunification. So, um, school. So think of your induction process for staff and students. So I'm telling you, this is better practice as a school. If, at the start of the school year, you always have this, you cover like, here's, here's what we do for all the different safety things and harassment, bullying and reporting and, and all these numbers and whatever. But like once school gets going a month or whatever, student moves in, you get a new teacher who's hired a position that wasn't filled. What do you do for induction for those folks? Okay. Not a lot. And it's not the same. As, would have happened at the start of the year so you need to make sure that you have a robust induction process of saying here's our induction process for safety and even for like sub teachers you know that there's some induction process but i'm saying um you know when you hire someone typically mid-year they lose out on a lot of that professional development which happens before the school year and it's absolutely critical for safety to have those people on board from day one Well, you can do that through videos through recordings I remember years ago, I worked at Menards, okay, and my first two days, like in college, and my first two days of employment was strictly watching informational videos about, like, how Menards operates and procedures and things like that, and and actually, it was very, very helpful that they did that, and I think the same thing should happen for schools. I think there should be a mandatory, you know, maybe one-day, um, and then, you know, that you're also then encouraged to ask questions. What do you understand? What do you, what do you not understand? I don't know necessarily make people take a competency quiz or something, but, you know. Anyway, um, as an administrator, ask, you know, so you, you have your administrative team meetings like every Monday or whatever. And if something sentinel happens somewhere else or in a nearby district, say, you know, if that happened here, how would we handle it? How might we handle it? Now, again, context and situation is different everywhere, Okay. You would never have anything that's the same. You know, things that are similar, are never the same, but you could say, um, boy, it looks like they, they, this is, this is something they did, which we, we really liked. Okay. Um, you know, so let, let's, let's look at this and, and maybe keep this in a file or, or keep, you know, electronic file or whatever in case something like that were to happen here. Or also here's something they did that we probably wouldn't do. And again, not that you're judging it; just you have a different culture, you have a, a different situation, context, different neighborhoods, things like that. But I think that's a good way to study things, and and just to bring up those discussions. Um, um time the timing of drills. I remember I went to a school district, and they said, um, "Okay, Dave, we're going to run a drill so you can observe it." And but we run the drills at the end of sixth hour because then we have time between sixth and seventh hour. And we know where everybody is and lunch is already done and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, right there. It's like, you know, you're running drills in a very predictable time when you're not going to have as much chaos. And, you know, what happens if you run this drill during the middle of lunch? What happens if you run this drill during recess or as kids are coming into the building? And not that you'd probably want to do that a lot, but you should do it once in a while just to see what happens um, and how people respond. One of the interesting things in my book of Lessons of Lower Manhattan uh, about the rescue of 500,000 people in nine hours, it was a perfect weather day, 80 degrees, um, it was sunny, you know, well into the evening, four um, mile-per-hour winds. So you had a lot of things just contextually that contributed to that successful rescue. But, again, let's take this in a different direction. What if it's raining outside I mean, are you really going to run a drill when it's raining outside? Well, is it, you probably should, like at least once. Um, are you going to get a lot of angry people upset with you and a lot of phone calls? Probably. I'm not saying that you do this and, you know, a whole bunch, but I mean, maybe it's something that, that you, you do. Um, so again, and, I think it's, it's important. That changes your benchmarking too. You know, if you're doing your drill every sixth hour at the end of sixth hour when, when it's very predictable, that benchmarking is going to be different than if you're doing that drill during lunch or while half the kids are out on the playground and stuff like that. So again, do it across environments, vary it up, vary it up. Um, and let people know you're going to do that ahead of time too, like parents and things like that. We're going to do these drills. We're not going to do it to the point where we're going to try to disrupt learning or something like that, but we are going to we're going to vary these drills up um, because we need to know how we operate in, in different times of the of the day. And I'm going to I'm going to close here with how to follow up immediately after a drill, but only after we hear a few more words about the safety
0: doc podcast. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to the safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant and he was still able to exceed our expectations when we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast.
1: Welcome back, everybody. We are in the final stretch of the Safety Doc Podcast. Hey, this is our back to school safety special. So I'm going to talk about how to follow up immediately after a drill. So if you're an administrator, um, th- this is, this is a great strategy. It's super simple, super simple. But what we do, we don't follow up after drills. We do a drill and then, um, we might talk about a staff meeting, how the drill goes, something like that. Even if, if that happens, a lot of times it doesn't happen. But um follow up after a drill. What I've done is I, I completed uh I developed a Google survey super easy, okay. I just and I have I have basically four questions on it. And what I do, so let's say there's a drill, you know, we're gonna run this drill and let people know ahead of time. This drill is gonna happen, okay. And afterwards, you're going to be sent a Google survey, like immediately afterwards. As soon as you get back in the building, that survey will be in your inbox. You then go to the inbox and complete that survey. It's going to have four questions on it, okay, four questions. Here are the four questions, all right? Your location during the drill, and part of this is you can identify building parts of the building that maybe don't have great communications um, or, you know, if somebody was outside or something like that, but um, your location during the drill. Again, you're sending this to teachers, and you're saying, we're going to run this drill, you go back, let's say it's a, you know, lockdown drill, fire drill, whatever. So we're running the drill. You go back to your room. You're going to have this in your inbox. And within that hour, before the end of the hour, you complete this survey, which is four questions. That first question, where were you during the drill? Okay. Um, and you might have people say, like, I had some kids going to the bathroom. We were transitioning back from gym. Yeah, you know, we were in the hallway, whatever that is. Okay. Did you hear the announcement of the drill? Big question. Did you hear it? How did you? It, 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 and, and of course, you know, you let people know ahead of time, um, you know, and then a comment section, you know, like, I heard it, but it's kind of muffled. Like, we don't have a good speaker system, or I kind of heard it through my phone, and I wasn't very clear of it. So those are areas that you can pinpoint specifically and go in and enhance communications. And it's not that hard to do this day and age to do that. So did you hear the announcement of the drill? Question three. Any questions or constructive input from you, the teacher? Okay. And it could be something like, you know what? We had two classrooms and I'm not sure. Like we were, we were kind of like co-teaching in one classroom. Should we just have stayed there? But I took my kids back to like my classroom. Um, there were some kids in a hallway from a different part of the building and I just brought them into my room, but then like their teacher doesn't know where they're at. Um, we we're going out for, um, you know, It was a bomb threat drill that we were doing and a student insisted on taking their backpack. I told them they couldn't. We got in an argument, should I just have let them take their backpack? Those type of questions and constructive input coming in. And number four, this is the big one. What questions do students have? It means you get back from the drill and you sit down. Remember we talked about the research showing showing students are desensitized. And you sit down with students and you maybe circle up the desk or whatever and you, you take a few minutes and you say, um, okay, what went well with the drill? What did you understand? Why? What was the purpose of the drill? How could it have been better? You know, how did you feel? Are you anxious? Um, does it not matter to you? And and you're going to get this feedback from students of of students saying, I don't know why we I don't know why we do these or like, what if I was in the bathroom when this happened, um, or other things that they might they might question. Um. so I, I I think you're gonna have that. What what questions do students have? You put all this together. So this is the four questions, okay? And and you get those into administration through this Google survey by the end of the hour. That's the expectation. And as an administrator, I think you're unyielding on that. That has to be done. You compile it and then the next day you get feedback to your administration about that. And I think you can also Um, Share that with students like during the morning announcements or something like that or something very, very succinct, saying, students, thank you. Here, here, like three points that you noted. We're going to look into those more. That really is powerful, students feeling that they've been heard, that they have a voice. Very, very powerful. So, again, you know, what questions do students have? Drill at different times of the day and pull a fire alarm during a lockdown. Hey, do you know what you're supposed to do? If you're in lockdown and a fire alarm sounds, you're supposed to stay in lockdown. Okay. Because you already have, you know, emergency responders likely responding. Um, but that fire drill to get you out of the, the hallways that you don't, you don't respond to a fire drill during lockdowns. So again, to let people know that if on the playground, what do you do? Do you return to the building? Do you, do you run to a location? Do, do the playground supervisors have discretion to take you off school premises? Um, because, you know, obviously if a building's on fire, you're not going to run back into a burning building. So, you know, those type of questions are going to come up. And here's another thing. No surprise intruder drills. And you don't make intruder drills look like authentic events where you have people, um, you know, you, and again, we don't do this cross industry. You don't come into banks and banks shut down for a day. And they have like a teller who looks like you know he or she's been shot and blood all over the floor and stuff like that. And this is how you respond in case somebody comes in and gives you, you know, a message, all the money or you're all dead, or something like that. No, no surprise intruder drills. Um, and this is where litigation comes in. You can Google search this, it is rising. And then also what's going to eventually happen is you are going to have somebody with conceal and carry who is going to anticipate then that that or expect that that's a real event that's happening, um, and, and they're going to fire and injure or kill somebody um, who is just conducting out a drill. You don't do these surprise intruder drills, okay? You, you, you just don't. Um, make it for – this is traumatizing. It's also in vogue to do this because it's very visual and people feel it and they feel like it's safe and they've done it. The, you know, the it, the thing that you have to remember is you do a drill and the next day you're having dif- different responders come to that drill. If there's an all call, people are on duty. People are off duty. Um, attrition, turnover in staff um, after a couple of weeks, after a couple of months, after whatever. So, you know, this one, this one drill a year thing only provides, so much awareness. Really, it provides awareness for if it's local PD and it's a smaller community of what the layout of the school is. So, and again, it's this whole assumption that there's one school shooter. What if there's like actually three school shooters? What if one is on top of the building? And there are certain things like you realize if you come to a school shooting scene and someone is on top of a building, that's a very bad sign. That means they have advanced military education and they're operating from an elevated position. So make it routine for police to visit the school and to do a walkthrough. That's very easy. Most school shootings happen right away in the morning. If police park out in front of school and, and they're just doing some paperwork or they get out and they're, they're greeting some families as they come in, just a friendly thing, that's great. Or if you have school, if police officers will periodically stop at the school, do a walkthrough, um Those type of visibility things are great, but it's not only that. It's an officer knows a layout of that building in case they have to respond to that building. Not only for that, but maybe a medical emergency or something to that effect. Don't be oversold on things like drone-proofing schools. For a while, it was like we have to put in these high-definition video cameras. No, it's forensic. But anyway, like drone-proofing schools and other intense fortification. I've noticed, like, some drills happening now of, like, what happens if we have a drone attack? Well, the likelihood of that is really, really low, and I'm actually having a guest on my show next week um, who is a commercial drone operator, and we are going to take one of his drones and fly it into an electronic barrier that it cannot penetrate around a hospital. So there are technologies which will emerge, but the fact is um, we're not going to see this. This is if it does, it's going to be uh, you know a one time event this just isn't the mode of delivery it's either going to be by gun or more likely the new trend is by vehicle you know harm to others so we're not going to see people try to outfit drones and all of this it's just not practical because once you're in a school you can't get the drone in a school but yet we see like we see people drilling for these things like for these drone attacks in in states it's just ridiculous it's just ridiculous um Remember that creating a hard target also creates a soft target. So if you're creating a target where it's impossible to get into the school, um, you know, you have multiple checkpoints and security and stuff. How about the bus stop? You know, it, how secure is that where, you know, you might have 40 students on a bus and another five getting on? Uh, what's the security of that? What's the security of the football field at night, you know, when it's all dark and you have your four-foot fence surrounding it and stuff like that? It's just you have to be aware of there's hard targets and there's soft targets the best thing again gets into your reporting system making people aware of how to report right so the th- the thought of a drone attack again it's intriguing it's it's really unlikely and things like that but so the back to school thing you're going to get a lot of hype about safety again the odds are that school it's 1 in 13,000 years of any school shooting in a school schools are very very safe um for students the biggest thing is understanding how to trust that gut feeling how to report that if you're a student or a staff
0: member and and not going overboard with these with these drills.